a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty Father, the beautiful story of uh, creation and redemption is a story of uh, your pursuit of people. It was in a remarkable way uh, your pursuit of humanity that even before we existed, you resolved to make us and to make the whole universe. And when we ran away, it was your expression of love that meant that you chased us down and the whole story of redemption is this unfolding of your kindness in pursuit of people who typically don't want to be found. And we ask that you now would continue that story of pursuit. Will you pursue us precisely as we speak about pursuing you? You take the first step. Your strength is the one that is decisive. So seek us and grant us to find ourselves found by you and that that would be the genesis of our pursuit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody, you can have a seat. And um, we are going to focus on that psalm that we said together responsively, but I'm gonna, we're going to enter the psalm uh, through pointing something out in the gospel reading. There's something very strange that Jesus says in the gospel reading. Um, Jesus says lots of strange things, but, but turn over to the gospel reading and look at chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says this, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and uh, daily and follow me. <clears throat> now, like I said, Jesus regularly says odd things, but I think that statement is shocking. Um, just think about it. It's as if Jesus is saying something like this. Um, it's as if Jesus is saying, hey, everybody, do you want to follow me? Do you want to be a Christian? Wonderful. Here's the first thing you need to do. The first thing, it's as if Jesus says, the first thing you need to do is you need to look at yourself. You need to go down into your soul and find that bit of you called self with a capital S. You need to find, in a sense, the youest part of who you are, the core. And then it's as if Jesus says you need to dethrone it and decenter it and put me in its place. 
It's as if Jesus says. And now when I say it that way, can you feel something of the shock? Because it's, I'm not sure that I can think of anything, any teaching of Jesus, that so directly cuts against the grain of our intuition much of the time. Am I wrong? And, I, and it brings up for me this question, uh, how can I possibly be authentically me if I'm obeying Jesus and denying myself? Or more simply this, how can Jesus ask us to deny ourselves? How can he dare ask us to deny ourselves? And how can that possibly be a good thing? All right, here's, that's the question. Here's, here's what I want to do. Here's the plan. We're going to look over at that psalm, Psalm 63. Why? Because this psalm allows us to kind of peer into the inner workings of a soul that is in the process of decentering self and centering God instead. And as we look at this psalm, here's what we're going to find. Why deny self? Simply put, for this reason. Because God is better than life. And therefore, the pursuit of God is the path of flourishing, even if it costs us everything. All right, that's what I want to show you. Come with me into the psalm, and let me explain. And, and if you're going to understand this psalm, I need you to imagine yourself in the middle of a desert. Uh, I don't know if you've ever spent any time in a desert. I grew up out west, so I know something of deserts. You can imagine Nevada, parts of California. Um, if you're into Star Wars, imagine Tatooine, okay? Um, he, he's, the psalm was written by David when he's in the wilderness of Judah, and that's about what the wilderness of Judah is like. But the thing is, David is in the wilderness of Judah. He's not on vacation. He's not getting, um, you know, he's not wintering in Palm Springs. He's running for his life. There's two times in his life when David could have uh, written this psalm. There was two times when he was in the desert running for his life. The first was when he was young. He wasn't king yet. He had been anointed king, but the uh, anointed, the, the reigning king, Saul, was hunting David, and David took refuge in the wilderness. The second time this happened was when David was older, quite a bit older, but this time, he was being hunted by his son, who had arranged a coup. We don't know which one this is. I suspect it's the first one, but I can't be sure. The important thing is this. All of us face suffering in our lives, but you've got to see that this psalm was composed when David's life hung by a thread. He didn't have he wasn't in a place of abundance when it came to food. He didn't have a lot of water, and his life was under constant threat of death. Now, put yourself in that situation. If you were there, here's my question, what is it that you would pursue? Like, what does that mean? What priority would dominate your concern? I would focus on me. Am I alone? Um, I would, I would, I, self-preservation would be the dominating concern, certainly, of my prayer. But despite that, look at Psalm, or Psalm 63, verse 1. It says this, 
I imagine David early in the morning as the sun is coming up over the desert, beginning to set this down in writing, saying, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts. That part doesn't surprise me, but this does. For you. My flesh faints. For you. Do you, do you see how odd this is? As in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Now, I want you to see how odd that verse is, because what he's doing is he's taking some of the very strongest desires he is probably experiencing in that moment, thirst, uh, fainting from weakness, uh, lack of resources, fear, whatever it is, he's taking his strongest desires and he's recalibrating them and directing them away from self and towards God. That's weird. I mean... Do you think David's thirsty? If he's not thirsty, he's worried about being thirsty. Do you think David's weak? Of course he is. Do you think David is daunted by the desert in this moment? Of course he is. But in this verse, he takes all those natural desires and he redirects them towards God and not primarily towards self. He, there's a decentering of self and a recentering of God. And my question is, why? What is it that's going on? Because it's not like these are not uh, valid concerns. Why is this happening? What's the recalibration towards God? And the answer comes in verse 2, but I'm going to have to fill in a backstory to explain it. Take a look at verse 2. David says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Everybody say, Sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. Now, what's the sanctuary? The sanctuary uh, is also called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent that was the precursor of the Israelite temple. Uh, but this tabernacle that David is thinking about, he's not there, but he's remembering it and thinking about it, the tabernacle was an ancient tent already by David's time, and it held within it ancient relics, things like the Ark of the Covenant and some other things, that pointed back hundreds of years to a very important aspect of Israelite history. See, the tabernacle was originally established uh, when the nation of Israel was in the desert. It was originally established when the nation, the whole nation of Israel, was hungry and thirsty, and they had just recently escaped being hunted by the king of Egypt. Do you remember the story I'm talking about? Uh, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, and then God liberated Israel through Moses, and, and in that moment, God defeated the armies of Israel. It was the, I mean, the armies of Egypt, and Egypt was the greatest superpower of the day. And then Moses led Israel into the desert, and the whole nation in the desert, despite the victory they just observed, the whole nation gets hungry, and the whole nation gets thirsty, and they completely panic. They just panic. But right there, when Israel is most vulnerable, when Israel's life seems most imperiled, that's the moment when God shows both his power and his love. What do I mean? Well, he showed his power by liberating uh, Israel from Egypt, which was just an, uh, an incomprehensible victory. But then he showed Israel his love. 
And he showed Israel his love when they're in the desert. And in the desert, God enters into a covenant with Israel. What do I mean by that? Well, a covenant is a committed relationship. Uh, but it's not a relationship based upon uh, transaction. A covenant is not a relationship based upon economics. A covenant is not a relationship based upon power. A covenant is a relationship based upon promise and loyalty and love. And so God gives himself in promise to Israel. He says, Israel, you're going to be my people and you're going to be my people forever. And there in the midst of the desert, Israel responds by saying, yes, I consent to your promise and we will be your people. And they entered this covenant, and the covenant was written down in what we know as the Ten Commandments that later grows into the early part of the Bible. But the thing is, from the very beginning, God's promise of love to his people established this bond and this covenant. But that's not all, because immediately God upholds his covenant by providing food every day for Israel and providing water every day for Israel. So, that, so to speak, in the honeymoon period of Israel's and God's covenant of love, in those first years, uh, Israel had to rely upon God for Israel's food and water day in and day out. And there was a way in which Israel, resting upon God's love and God's power, so to speak, ratified this covenant and taught them to trust over the course of 40 years. Now, here's what's really important to see. Israel's whole life was upheld by God's power and by God's love. And together... That displayed God's glory. And all of that story is signified in this tent called the tabernacle, also called the sanctuary, and that's what David is thinking about when he's a long, long way away from it in the desert. When David is in the desert, as he's writing this psalm, his mind goes back to the sanctuary of the tabernacle. And he thinks about the whole history that the sanctuary and the tabernacle signifies. But it's more than that. And Emmanuel, this is something that's going to be a little hard for, some of it, for us to grasp. Because it, there's a cultural distance here. But try. The tabernacle was not just a monument to history. The tabernacle was a place to worship God. And when you worshiped God in the tabernacle, you were, so to speak, drawn into the story from the past. As you worshiped God in the tabernacle, the story from the past became the story of your present. What? As you worshiped in the tabernacle, the past story of God's power and God's love to Israel, which happened hundreds of years beforehand, so to speak, as you worship, becomes part of your story, part of the story of God's love and power for you in this present moment. It went from history to your own memory. Uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs says this, there is a profound difference between history and memory. History 
is someone else's story, an event that happened somewhere else to someone long ago. But memory is my story, something that happened to me and is part of who I am. History is information. Memory, by contrast, is part of identity. When David worshipped at the temple, or when he remembered the temple, the tabernacle, the sanctuary later on, Israel's history became David's memory and therefore reshaped his identity. What does that mean? David was not at the Exodus, right, personally. But when he worshipped at the tabernacle, he was enrolled into the same covenant, he was enrolled into the same relationship of love with God, and therefore, David could know that uh, just as God's power and God's love upheld Israel all those years before, so God's power and God's love would uphold him now in the midst of his time in the desert. And that new memory, the memory of God's love and power for him, uh, so deeply reshaped his identity that his identity was no longer primarily rooted in self, it was now rooted in God and God's action for him. That's what worship always does, Emmanuel. When we gather, we remember God's past, especially for us, God's story in Jesus Christ. But don't imagine that we're just thinking about past events that happened long ago. No, God is active now as we remember and as we rehearse, enrolling us in the story, bringing us into the book, so to speak. We, he is fusing our memories with his grand story. And as he does that, our memory is recalibrated to God, and he becomes the basis of our very deepest identity. Worship is a powerful thing. It will change you. But now go back to David, because David's in the desert. He remembers the tabernacle. And in remembering the tabernacle, he remembers God's power and God's love. And the result is an intimacy that ends up animating all of his life. Take a look at verse 8. You can see it here. Verse 8 says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Can you feel the intimacy of that verse? Um, today's Father's Day. Am I right? Yes, I think it is. Call, 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 call your dad if you can. Um, imagine a little girl running up to her father and throwing her arms around her father's neck and squeezing. And her father uh, holds her with a strong arm. Now, that little girl in that moment and in that embrace may not know the definition of loyalty or trust or intimacy or, or she may not know the, the meaning of those words or the definition, but she's experiencing all of those things in that moment. In that moment, the father is, is, is supplying all the strength and the trustworthiness. And the little girl's arms clinging and squeezing the father's neck is a way of consenting to his love and expressing her trust in him. And the result is a joyful intimacy. And that's what David experiences with God. God clings, or G David clings to God in trust, just like Israel always had. 
And God's power and love upholds him. And it's in that bond that David finds true fulfillment. David uses different words. Look at verse 3. He says, your steadfast love is better than life. He's found something better than life. And I think we could say it differently. The intimacy with God that he knows in that moment and that moment of great need animates all of life in, with such meaning and such significance and fills life with everything of real eternal value. And therefore, David says, it's of greater value than everything else. All right. Pause there. Everybody take a deep breath. And go back to the question at the beginning. Jesus asks us to deny ourselves and follow him. How can that possibly be a good thing? We'll bring that question to David. Because in the middle of the desert, David uh, flourishes not by going inward to self, but by looking away from self and toward God. And as he seeks God, he finds God seeking him in love, and that bond with God becomes the basis of his new identity. In the middle of the desert, I bet you sometimes he felt lost because he needed a map. But when he was penning this psalm, he didn't feel lost in his soul. He knew he was found as he sought God. And what I want you to see, Emmanuel, is that denying ourselves and following Jesus is not an erasure of who we are. Instead, it's a discovery of a new identity in relationship with God. And for David, that new identity in union with God is so rich and so meaningful and so fulfilling that life without it seems almost meaningless. And it's not just that, it also ends up being an identity that is profoundly resilient. Remember, David is in trouble. He is under tremendous pressure. Uh, he's hungry. He's in physical need. And when you're, when you're really, really hungry, it's hard to think. Have you ever been real, like, have you ever gone days and days without food? After a while, at least if you're me, uh, food ends up, I was in the wilderness one time, went four days without food, and I, I could not think about anything else, basically. But even that desire, verse 5, is deployed towards God. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. His physical hunger is important. That's clear all the way through the Bible. But his hunger is now an image of a deeper desire for intimacy with God. David has come to believe that God is even better than food. Which is, by the way, one reason why Christians fast. But David also has good reason to fear. Uh, he's being threatened by people around him. And when you're really, really scared, if you're like me, in the middle of the night, you fret and you worry and you wake up at 4 a.m. and you can't get back to sleep. But look what happens to David. Consider the resilience. Verse 6, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the watches of the night. You have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I shall sing for joy. His pursuit of God and his intimacy with God has invaded the citadels of anxiety so that even the night, that most frightful time, has become a sacred time of worship. I'm trying to show you, 
that even in the most vulnerable parts of David's experience, he's finding God. We are never weaker than when we are clinging to ourselves, and we are never stronger than when we cling to God. And then finally, David was facing violent death. Verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be, uh, they shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David, trusting in the Lord's power and his love, becomes great, con uh, very confident for the future. He knows that God's going to uphold him, and that's exactly what plays out. Uh, David survives both these big crises. But now you've got to think about David's distant grandson, Jesus. Because everything we've said about David's relationship with God is true of Jesus' relationship with his father. Jesus clings to his father, and though his father upholds him. And they were bound in a perfect kind of intimacy. And that held when Jesus was hungry in the desert and when he was tempted uh, to stop trusting his father. And there were many times where Jesus prayed all through the night, bringing things that might have caused him anxiety before his father because he knew that his father would uphold him and therefore he clung to his father in prayer. But there came one night, there came one night when Jesus was tempted beyond anything that had come before. There was one night in Gethsemane when Jesus knelt down and prayed and said, Father, I don't want what's going to happen to happen. If there's a way that this cup can be taken from me, I don't want to die, Father. And the question in that moment as Jesus faced his death was this, would he deny himself and take up the cross? Would he prefer his father over his own life? And remarkably and shockingly, Jesus made the decision when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And in that moment, Jesus went to his death, fulfilling this psalm. Because as he went to the de his death, he was clinging to his father. He was trusting that somehow the father would uphold him in the midst of even his death. And he was clinging not to himself, but he was clinging to God trusting that God's steadfast love is better than life, and therefore, he was trusting that God's steadfast love is stronger even than death. And so he went to the cross. And friends, just like God proved faithful to Israel, and just like God proved faithful to David, so God proved even more faithful to Jesus Christ. Jesus denied himself and took up the cross and found it to be the path to resurrection. And Emmanuel, at the end of the day, that's why Jesus calls us to the same path. When Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, he's not being cruel. He's not trying to erase you. He's being kind. He's calling us to decenter self. He's calling us to decline from making self the arbiter of our deepest identity. And as shocking as it sounds, it's Jesus' sweet call of love to us. He's beckoning us to follow him on his own path to resurrection. He's calling us to an intimacy with his Father that animates all of life with new meaning. Following Jesus is costly. It costs us everything. 
But when you let go of self and you cling to Christ, you will find yourself embraced in the strong arms of an infinite God. And you will find yourselves upheld by God's power and God's love. And you will find a love that is even better than life itself. And you will find a love that will endure beyond death and call you back to life and give you resurrection. And it will be a love that we will never tire of glorying in, in the ages, in the countless ages to come. So Emmanuel, take Psalm 63. And make it part of your prayer life. And as you pray this psalm, ask God to take this psalm and diffuse it into your memory. And then to reshape your identity so that you cling to Christ and find yourself upheld by him. And then you will see why it is a good thing to deny self, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus every day. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.